Okay, hey everyone, this is Michael Ingram. Welcome to Simply Psych EDU. This podcast is on obsessive compulsive disorder. So to begin, um, let's define what an obsession is and what a compulsion is. So obsessions are recurrent and intrusive thoughts, feelings, ideas, or sensations, and they're typically mental acts um, or mental events. A compulsion is really a, a behavior, and a compulsion is a conscious, standardized, recurrent behavior, uh, like counting or checking or avoiding. Um, And the the idea here is that the obsession is sort of this unwanted thought that creates anxiety in the individual and then as a result of that anxiety um, drives the individual to then perform a compulsive act that is an attempt to reduce that anxiety. So in OCD, uh, we say that the obsessions and compulsions are ego dystonic, and what that means really is that we know that there's something wrong, right? We say we do these, you know, compulsive acts, or we have these obsessions, and it's not like we're doing these things thinking, oh, this is normal, and this is um, how we have to be uh, living our everyday life. We know that this is uh, bothersome. We know that this is not right. Uh, this is an incredible waste of time, and we realize that there is something wrong. So compulsive acts, um, as stated before, are are carried out really as an attempt to relieve the anxiety that's associated with the obsession. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Any attempt to sort of resist that compulsive behavior um, or compulsive act increases our anxiety. In terms of the epidemiology, I don't want to go into too much detail, but we know that about two to three percent um, of the general population um, has OCD. It's the fourth most common outpatient psychiatric diagnosis in the United States. And uh, we know that um, across um, many different cultures, we see the same or similar epidemiological data. It's important also to know that um, it's estimated that about 40% of patients don't achieve a clinical response from the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are the uh, first-line pharmacologic agents for obsessive-compulsive disorder. So typically, uh, females are slightly uh, more affected uh, than males in adulthood, uh, but interestingly, boys um, are two to three times more affected uh, than girls in childhood. Uh, We know that the mean age of onset is about 20 years old. It's a little bit earlier for boys than it is for girls. Uh, boys, it's about 19 years old. Girls, it's about 22 years old. And we also know that less than about 15% of individuals um, have onset of symptoms after 35. So it's pretty rare, uh, relatively rare, that OCD would develop um, after the age of 35. About 60% or so have um, onset onset of symptoms before 25 years old. So the risk factors uh, typically for OCD, there's a genetic component, right? So we know in in monozygotic concordance studies um, or twin studies, the concordance rate is about 0.57. So what what does concordance mean? It just means that um, if we we look at twins, if one is affected, uh, what is the probability that the other will also be affected? Environmental risks... Um, are also something to take into account. So early life trauma, abuse, uh, perinatal uh, insults, infections, these can all be um, associated with the development of 
obsessive compulsive disorder. And then of course the psychosocial and, and developmental factors, which uh, cannot be ignored. Now there's some controversy about PANDAS, and PANDAS is an interesting disorder. It's the pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with uh, streptococcal infections. So this is beta hemolytic uh, strep um, in early childhood results in an immune reaction where um, our bodies develop antibodies um, and these antibodies then attack key areas of the brain which then ultimately cause uh, tics and other sort of OCD type uh, behaviors. Now this is controversial. Um, not everybody would agree that this even exists as I personally believe that there is some truth um, and that this is a real condition. Many comorbidities uh, with OCD, so anxiety disorders are certainly um, the highest on the list, but of course mood disorders, um, impulse control disorders, and substance use disorders also are highly comorbid, about 39%. I think there are many reasons for that, but you know, when I think of OCD, as somebody who has suffered from OCD, I do think of it sort of as an addiction in some ways. It's almost an addiction to relieving that anxiety you get from those obsessions uh, by performing those compulsive acts. And one thing I wanted to mention too is that just because you're not doing something physically in terms of a compulsive act, uh, mental acts can be compulsive acts as well. So if you're counting in your head, for example, um, or you're doing some sort of repetitive type compulsive act in your, in your mind um, with your thoughts, that's still considered a compulsion. So 30% of patients uh, with OCD have an accompanying tic disorder. And this makes sense because we know that much of the pathophysiology associated with OCD has to do with the basal ganglia circuits. And the basal ganglia is very much implicated in Tourette's and other tic-related disorders. The DSM-5 criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder, you don't have to have both obsess obsessions and compulsions. You can have one or the other. But it's important that you also know that you know many experts will say that it's very, very rare that somebody has just one or the other. Usually you're able, if you, if you dig deep enough, to find uh, both the obsessions and the compulsions. These behaviors or mental acts are not connected in a realistic way with what they are designed to neutralize or prevent or are clearly excessive. So this is you know the classic example of if I don't do this, it's the if-then thinking, right? It's this magical type thinking. If I don't do this, then some unrelated sort of bizarre or totally unrealistic thing is gonna happen. If I step on this crack, I'll break my mother's back is a good sort of example of the type of unrealistic, unrelated association, if you will, that um, individuals with OCD often make. There are many different symptom uh, patterns in OCD. Um, a few of them, um, and by the way, they're, they're, they've separated these out, but you know, many individuals with OCD have more than one type of symptom pattern. It's not like you just have one or the other. Some you know, have more of one than the other and there's a mix, but it's, it's, you know, we, we sort of characterize the symptom patterns as um, either contamination type symptom patterns where uh, the focus of the obsession is on contamination and the compulsion is to wash your hands and, and stay clean. Uh, then there's the pathologic doubt uh, symptom pattern where an uh, individual is, is, co is constantly doubting everything and uh, to, a, to, you know, to a pathological degree and is spending um, a lot of time checking and rechecking 
because they're just not sure um, that they did something appropriately. Then there's the intrusive thoughts um, symptom pattern where you know you just have these very disturbing you know either violent sexual uh, thoughts that um, are extremely intrusive they're very disturbing and because of that you sort of have this sense of guilt that you're even having those thoughts and you have this fear that you're going to actually perform uh, whatever it is you're thinking about or you're going to do whatever it is you're thinking about and that very much is distressing. And then there's the symmetry and precision uh, pattern where the individual is, is very much focused on uh, symmetry and uh, perfection. And this will lead to uh, slowness, um, you know, being late for, for things and uh, taking a long time to do your homework, for example, because you have to like rewrite the thing over and over and over again um, because it has to look exactly the way uh, you want it to look. The Y box is the Y box, the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, is a scale they use mainly in research, although uh, we use it sometimes in our outpatient practices, to monitor or track the, the progress of patients' symptoms over time. And it's just 10 questions asking you know the severity of the various obsessions and compulsions and, um, and it, you get a raw score, and over time you can track that. The neurobiology of obsessive compulsive disorder is very interesting. Don't have too much time to get into it, but one of the things you should know is that the neurotransmitters that have been most implicated in OCD pathophysiology uh, include serotonin, mainly from evidence uh, that the SSRIs help in alleviating symptoms along with uh, serotonin metabolites um, and levels of serotonin that have been measured in individuals with OCD. Uh, glutamate is also involved, and this is uh, supported by evidence that glutamate modulating drugs um, have some benefit in patients with OCD. There's a very important circuit that we think is the primary uh, or dysfunctioning circuit in OCD. Now, when I say primary or the one, it's not actually the one. Remember that the brain is very complex and anything that we say here um, should be taken with a grain of salt that uh, when we talk about circuits and, and how these circuits are, are dysfunctioning, quote, quote, dysfunctioning, um, what exactly that means is still sort of up, up to interpretation. Um, but based on neuroimaging studies, we know that there, there might be some dysfunction in a circuit called the corticostriato the lamo-cortical circuit. And this circuit um, essentially is a circuit that involves the cortex, uh, mainly the orbital frontal cortex, for example, the striatum, which includes the caudate, the putamen, the subthalamic nucleus, uh, the thalamus, and then uh, projections back to uh, the cerebral cortex. So the circuit's important because it's implicated in many different uh, psychiatric disorders. And so for a minute here, I want to just briefly talk about the orbital frontal cortex, uh, which, uh, by the way, the orbital frontal cortex is a part of the prefrontal cortex um, and is a part of the frontal lobe. And it's located sort of on the ventral surface of the frontal lobe. And the orbital frontal cortex is important because it's probably the highest emotional processing integration center 
in the brain and it receives input from many different limbic structures including the temporal cortex, uh, the amygdala, the hypothalamus. Um, it's very much involved in emotional processing. It receives inputs from the visual system, the olfactory system, uh, taste. So the orbitofrontal cortex functions for response uh, reinforcement and response inhibition. Uh, it allows the acquisition of appropriate behaviors and the inhibition of inappropriate behaviors based on anticipated rewards. So uh, it basically evaluates the emotional uh, importance of stimuli and basically helps select which behavioral response uh, is most appropriate based on the reward and punishment uh, that's provided by the response. Other major function of the orbifrontal cortex um, is in response inhibition, and what that means is that when you're in a situation where there's a lot at stake, or there's a lot of emotion involved, or you're scared, what the orbitofrontal cortex does is help dampen down or inhibit those impulsive type drives, if you will, that are happening at that moment, so that you can sort of make a more informed decision that isn't just an impulsive, poorly thought out, emotionally driven decision, if that makes sense. And certainly in patients who have traumatic brain injury, for example, who have damage to their orbitofrontal cortex, they're very, very impulsive, right? They're making decisions without thinking about it, um, or they're sort of not thinking about the consequences of their decisions. And this is why the orbitofrontal cortex is so important and it's involved in many impulse um, compulsive type uh, disorders. So the reason I bring this up is because patients with OCD exhibit uh, reduced volume and increased uh, gray matter density in the orbitofrontal cortex. They show um, increased metabolism in the orbitofrontal cortex as well as the uh, caudate nucleus and the anterior uh, cingulate cortex. Now the question is, well, is this hyperactivity the pathology itself or is it an adaptive response to pathology? And that's a question that it still remains to be uh, determined. But we know that there is hyperactivity in those structures. Um, we know that glutamate is the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, particularly in this circuit, the corticostriatothalamic cortical circuit. And in individuals with OCD, they've shown um, increased glutamate levels in the cerebral spinal fluid, the caudate, and the orbitofrontal cortex. And so um, that's just a little bit about uh, the anatomy and circuitry that we often think about when we think about OCD. And of course, there's much more to it than this. Uh, for the sake of time, we'll have to move on. So uh, the cycle of obsessive-compulsive disorder really starts with a stimulus. The stimulus can be either internal or external. It essentially causes us to feel anxiety and distress. It causes us to obsess about whatever it is. The anxiety and distress um, sort of is reinforcing itself. This leads to a compulsive ritualized behavior, an attempt to relieve that distress. And there is usually some temporary relief from that distress and anxiety, but it's short-lived. It's just not. Uh, it's just not quite enough, and so you get into this cycle of constantly trying to do this behavior over and over and over again in an attempt to continuously relieve 
uh, that, that anxiety. The treatments for uh, obsessive compulsive disorder are really a combination of, of pharmacotherapy and behavioral therapy. Um, the first line medications for obsessive compulsive disorder are these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, this includes uh, Prozac or fluoxetine, Luvox or fluvoxamine, Paxil or paroxetine, sertraline or Zoloft, citalopram or Celexa. Usually with the SSRIs, you typically have to get to a higher dose um, for OCD to target those OCD symptoms than you would um, dosing an individual with depression. The SNRIs, or the selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, are also effective in treating OCD. Um, so Effexor or venlafaxine is often used um, with some success. Probably the best medication, the gold standard for obsessive compulsive disorder, is clomipramine. And clomipramine, which is an afronil, is an old tricyclic antidepressant um, that has a high selectivity for serotonin reuptake. It's probably the most selective for serotonin reuptake amongst the tricyclic antidepressants. The problem with clomipramine, which has been used for years, um, but the problem with it, the reason why it's not first line is because of the side effects. You get a lot of the uh, sort of anticholinergic, antihistaminergic uh, side effects that you get uh, with many of the other tricyclics. Other therapies that have been tried uh, with some success include naltrexone. The idea being that if we can block the reinforcing effects of doing the compulsive behavior, perhaps we can break the cycle. Uh, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, brain surgery or deep brain stimulation, uh, glutamatergic agents like ketamine, N-acetylcysteine, Memantine or Namenda have all been uh, tried with some uh, data showing some success in treating OCD. But regardless, uh, a combination of medication and behavioral therapy, and by behavioral therapy I really mean uh, a very specific type of, of therapy called exposure response prevention therapy, uh, has been shown to be the best treatment options for obsessive compulsive disorder. We know that the combination of medication and therapy together results in better outcomes than either, either individually. And so um, I've always been a, an advocate for both medication and therapy. The issues with current treatment, it's basically just the medication. Um, only 20 to 30% of patients have a significant improvement with medication, 40 to 50% have moderate improvement, and 20 to 40% actually don't respond at all, get worse. And the issue here is that we know that the higher doses of SSRIs are required to really get those, um, or get to those OCD symptoms, but as you go higher on the SSRIs, you also uh, run into many more side effects. And this probably is the reason why we get a lot of non-compliance with the higher doses of SSRIs. Okay, well that was all that I wanted to speak about today on obsessive compulsive disorder. That was just a brief overview. Thanks for tuning in and we will be back uh, hopefully next week. I hope everybody is staying safe, washing your hands, not touching your face, and staying healthy. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.